You're listening to Kobe Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Taimur Beg, Chief Economist. Welcome to our 81st episode. So I have just come back from a full month of travels through the US, Europe, and UK. And if there was one common topic I discussed with family, friends, and colleagues during the trip, surprise, surprise, it was inflation. But it was not just inflation. It was also things that stem from it, from interest rate increases to recession risks, housing market, currency market volatility, and of course, the war in Ukraine. So I think it's appropriate to resume our series after my month of being away with a dive in global macro. I'm very pleased for that to have with us Robert Diekel, professor of economics at the University of Southern California. Robert's specializations range from international finance to open economy and development, as well as economies of Japan and East Asia. In addition to academia, Robert has worked at the International Monetary Fund and was a visiting scholar at the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. Professor Robert Diekel, welcome to Kobe Time. Thank you. Thank you. It's a real, uh, real pleasure. And uh, it's great to meet up with you again. Yeah, uh, I know. It's been a long, long time, Robert. And I hope time. next time we meet, it'll be in person. Great. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert, normally we start our macro discussions with the U.S. And you were based in L.A., so we have to talk a lot about the U.S. But I would like to turn things around a bit and start with a key area of your interest, Japan. So sitting here in Singapore, uh, from the market side of the business, we have been struck by the extraordinary magnitude of yen depreciation we've seen this year. And as you well know, that many financial markets participants have been basically calling the yield curve control of the Bank of Japan unsustainable, but they're holding fast. So let's start mm-hmm. with your perspective on Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think um, they're uh, quite uh, disconnected from in, in terms of their monetary policy from the United States and uh, and Europe. And I think the reason for that um, is that um, the, their view is that the domestic economy is uh, still still weak. Uh, their, the wage increases have not um, have not wages haven't risen that much. They're like 1.5, 1.5% or so. And um so the domestic economy is weak, and they need to continue their um, loose monetary policies to get the domestic economy to um, re- recover some more. And the inflation rates are there. Uh, you know, it's not like 0.5 as it was like a couple of years ago, but it's still um, just a tad above two. So it's not. It's not. Uh, um, it's a bit above their. Their targets at the official target is a little bit above two, I guess. So it's sort of around that level now, and uh, so it hasn't exceeded it by any kind of margin. Uh, so, so I, I think the authorities feel that it, the um, their loose monetary policies is still justified, um, justified at, at this point. Uh, the only concern there is the. Um, Weak yen. It hasn't been this weak since the early '90s, and uh, that has resulted in, given the high kind of dollar-based uh, commodity prices and oil prices and other input prices, that means that those prices are coming in even higher because of the weaker weaker yen into Japan, uh, which is um, causing. They import a lot of their foodstuffs, for example, food and energy, and that's causing uh, some problems for households, which um, 
their budgets are stressed quite a bit because of the high food prices and in terms of production, the high energy prices. So, uh, so that's a concern, but there's, um, there's hasn't been intervention and I don't think the exchange rate intervention has been taken, taken very seriously. So um, yeah, I think uh, the, um, of course, if, as if they have to start raising their short-term interest rates, they can't maintain their 10-year rate at 0.5%. So that's going to have to go. Uh, so it's going to, whether their, um, um, their, their announcement of holding interest rates, two interest rates constant would be, or at least the 10-year rate constant, it's going to depend on uh, what they're going to do to the short rates. But they didn't, they haven't raised it. And But I think uh, it, it all depends on the inflation rate as it starts creeping up toward 3%, 4%, even if the domestic economy doesn't um, improve that, that much, I, I think they're going to have to start raising it. The and, interest rate, yeah. And, and in terms of the sustainability of the yield curve control, uh, do you see any physical limits or it is really going to be a bit of an intellectual exercise for the good of the economy they'll give up? It will not be something that the no, market... I, I think they would have to give up if they start raising their short rates. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm just talking in terms of the quantitative, you know, magnitude well will well, they so it's 0.5 so they can say okay we'll make it two percent three percent that's that's conceivable yeah that's conceivable but um i don't you know it was all done to um so th there's two there's two things one is uh it's it was to stimulate the economy kind of keep the long rates low and the other thing is to uh have that have a certain gap between the short rates and the long rates to maintain the profitability of the banking system, right? Because they banks make money on the yield curve and they're an important part of the Japanese stock market and uh, and the the economy. So um, in that sense, I can you know they could kind of bump bump both up uh, at a certain point. But um, so that so that's certainly a possibility. But it's not as crucial as when they were suffering from near deflation that they all, all this kind of came up, up, you know, aboard because of that. So, right. They finally got what they wanted, but they got a bit too much of it. It seems like very quickly. <laughs> well, I, I'm not so sure if it's too much yet. That's the surprise of the whole thing that it's a little bit of, it, it's the mystery continues because as the rest of the world, Europe and the U S have inflation rates approaching 9%, it's still just a little above two there. So, you know, it's still uh, still a mystery there. Right. Yeah. So in terms of that mystery, is it because that unlike the European or the U.S. economies, Japan's fiscal supporter on the pandemic was not commensurately large? Is it because mm -hmm. they have a chronically large output gap and therefore producers still mm -hmm. have no power to raise prices? Mm -hmm. I, I, I think it's both. The uh, the as you as you point out, the, the fiscal response was it was nothing like that in the U.S. Given their budget budgetary situation is is quite dire. You know the the debt GDP ratio is much higher, so they don't have the fiscal space to didn't have the fiscal space to do that. And uh, also the the um, yeah the kind of general um, output gap and the recessed state of the economy owing to um, you know, 
aging of the population and lack of productivity growth, TFP growth, things like that. Yeah. Um, so to that point that, you know, TFP growth and aging and sort of structural decline in economic growth, uh, you have been, you know, writing about and following Japan through this entire phase, you know, mm-hmm. the struggles to get out of the 90s crisis through various policies to the aughts and the tens. Um, what are the broader lessons, Robert? I mean, sitting in Singapore, I see, you know, Singapore has an aging dynamic and as it sort of hits toward the frontier of production, almost certainly, mm-hmm. you know, structurally lower. Yeah. Europe has the same issue, perhaps even U.S. So what what are your... Uh, now, I don't know what lessons, what positive lessons Japan could, the, the rest of the world could learn from it. I think the, the only lesson is that don't let your economy age so, age so drastically. <laughs> But, uh, and <clears throat> that's hard to do with just um, pro-natalist policies. They, 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 like some European countries, Japan tried with sort of, uh, certainly the Abe administration with um, giving um, essentially very inexpensive childcare and um, and subsidies to, for the, raising the number of children. But that hasn't really worked that much. And I, I think. Um, what what's what hurts the country is is really the lack of lack of immigration. That's right. And um, I think uh, I think Japan has a lot to learn from from Singapore. I, I think to uh, sort of bring in talent, try to bring in talent from all over the world at at various levels, like um, kind of physical labor and also intellectual labor. But they haven't they haven't done that, um, although. Abe Abe has tried, and um, I, I think that's probably the the biggest reason uh, why they're suffering from an aging population that's more drastic than other countries. And um, I, I think um, so. But I mean, what do you do when you have an a, a population as aging as Japan? I mean, you have high. You have high debt. Um, I think the policies that they took are sort of appropriate. You're not going to have a lot of risk capital prices going up in a situation like that. So, um, but um, you have deflation and debt. Sort of the JGB prices have been going up. So holding bonds have been a good asset choice, and holding money has been a good asset choice. So um, that's um, so that's why the, the bonds found a ready market. In Japan, their debt. So I think that I think they've done about as given given the aging of the population, they've done about as um, well as they could. Um, again, there's things like innovation policies and all that, but it's uh, those things are always very hard to see. Um, although this new um, um, uh, Kishida, the, the prime minister, is um, trying to. Um, promote more innovation by bringing back sort of more of the Japan Inc. Uh, approach, where you su- you subsidize industries and things like that, and that may bear fruit. But I'm, you know, that that era seems to have passed <laughs> in the global economy. So, so, um, so I think yeah, the the only lesson is that try not to get your economy aging and be be more open to the international economy. Bring people in, and um, but they. Uh, and I think Europe is going that way, and Singapore has as well. Um, and of course, the United States has always been very open to um, mobility of human capital. And I think that's where 
it's been it's been very hard for Japan to to adapt, and um, they're kind of at their current current difficulties there. Yeah. Robert, you sort of talked about one of the consequences of aging as debt and deflation. Um, I don't know if you read this book. It's uh, Charles Goodhart and Mahmoud Pradhan wrote this book a couple of years ago called The Great Demographic Reversal. And they have a sort of a provocative thesis, which is we should not look at Japan and take away that aging and deflation come hand in hand. Japan's deflation is more related to regional market liberalization over the last two decades, as well as, you know, China's exporting of, you know, low mm-hmm. prices to mm-hmm. the tradable sector. And their point is that as U.S. and Europe and other countries age, they will actually see inflationary impact because labor force shrinks and wage demand will actually pick up. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I mean, I have always been in your camp because even in the IMF, when we wrote papers on demographic, the stylus fact common with aging was dissipation of price pressure. So mm-hmm. what do you think of this pushback that it may actually be the other way around? So so they're arguing that wages are going to be increasing with um, with um, shrinking of the labor force, a shortage of shortage of the working age population. And that, um, yeah, I mean, those. um I think what's the Japanese lesson is that it's indeed true. The working age population has 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 gone down, um, but um, that again, that's been augmented by by imports from um, from China and um, China and the rest of the world. What what what's hurt is that the demand for Japanese products has has gone down like uh, globally. Right, because of the competition from Korea and, and China and other Southeast Asian countries, and domestic, well, I mean, still a large domestic economy, but the the demand for um, Japanese consumption goods such as um, cars and also since it's, the population is so aging, there's very little new household formation. So when you buy a house, you, there's all sorts of stuff that goes into that. If we build a house, material, but that demand's just collapsed. So. Home electronics and materials to build housing, furniture, uh, clothing, because <laughs> uh, you're not working. People aren't working as much. Um, those so domestic consumption demand um, is is growing miserably. Has been growing miserably, and and that's contributed to the, the lack of domestic market growth and low investment because companies can't find markets for their products. And um, so, therefore, low low GDP and the, and deflation as a consequence. Um, so, yes, I, I I know Charles's arguments. I've heard other people comment on his book, and it doesn't seem to be had receive a very widespread <laughs> um, widespread uh, positive or a widespread agreement. And and I, I don't particularly agree agree with. I mean, I, I think they need to argue that the which which they are. Charles is arguing that the globalization, internationalization has ended. So that, that deflationary force isn't there. And then all you have is this kind of high wages, right? That's gonna cause that's gonna cause in, inflation. But um, you know, it, it I, I think the counter-argument's been well, you're gonna still have globalized like India is coming on. The South South Asian economies are are coming on board, and certainly Philippines and Southeast Asia have a young demographic that are producing a lot. So that's that's going to continue, and that um, the um, um, it's the 
and the robots are going to <laughs> robots are going to come in and replace the labor anyway. So you may not need to need that much you know, demand and any of immigration. So uh, it's a it's um, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting hypothesis. Uh, but um, I'm not I'm not too I'm not too sure if it's going to be right. Yeah. Very good. No, that's that's a very uh, you know sort of nuanced response. I appreciate that, Robert. All right, so let's cross the Pacific back mm-hmm. to your shores. Mm-hmm. Um, so during my visit to the U.S. last month, I heard nothing but stories of you know soaring gas prices and soaring mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. costs of you know hiring labor. So let's get a sense of your take on the inflation situation. Yeah. So. Um... And people are forecast right it's like eight eight and a half nine and um you know people have been forecasting a, a turn into <laughs> lower inflation for the last three three months or so and it hasn't happened yet um but if oil prices are declining somewhat and um so i i think simply by what people are saying what the i, I don't know the technical term of it but the since the the level last year was was high you know the growth relatively speaking the growth level is not going to raise the inflation as much so that's going to kind of mechanically bring it down um but um kind of more bro- more broadly thinking about the thinking about the economics um it's cl- clearly this uh administration and um the central bank was it was very much, very much behind the curve, and they're not even. I mean, they're raising rates at a fairly rapid, rapid clip, uh, but um, because of concern about the financial markets, and I think also about the labor markets, they, it's not the, the real rates are still negative and, and quite negative. Yeah, so you have like six percent uh, negative real in, real interest rates, so you can take. Overall, you know, people think positive real interest rates are um, less stimulative than negative real interest rates, and you kind of still have negative real interest rates. So, uh, the stimulus today is it's less than before, but it's it's still stimul it's still a stimulative situation given the expected given the actual inflation, right? So, um, and and I can't really imagine this central bank being like um, the Volcker Central Bank. And, you know, and also we don't have a history of the entire 70s of having high inflation where, where Volcker had the background and the support to do that. So this uh, central bank, I, I don't think is going to do that. And therefore, you're going to kind of continue to have longer um, negative real interest rates and um, therefore more stimulative than otherwise. And inflation could... Um, continue longer like you can't in sorts so looking at this history in 1982 you know we we had started to have these very rapid interest rate increases and the economy started growing again in 84 85 and you see like around the mid 80s combined with the collapse of opec and the falling oil prices you started to have low and stable inflation in the like 85 85 86 and uh, um, I, I think the decline in inflation is going to be a, a little more, a little more tamed, and you know um, we may not reach two percent by 
2024. You know, we might, I, I think, I think it'll be higher than that, uh, and higher than that for longer. So if I were, I the the tip spread. I mean, what? Let's say it's between two up two point five, around two point five. But um, I, I think um, if I, I, I would bet on something higher than two point five over the next five years on average. Yeah. So the, mainly because of the more accommodating. Um, more accommodating, um, not not a not a draconian monetary tightening. Sort of more accommodating, being aware of the labor markets and the financial markets. Uh, Very interesting. Than, yeah. So, so Robert, you are basically saying that the demand side impulse is not going to go away. So, even if we have some favorable developments on the supply side, so you know, mm. oil production mm-hmm. gets ramped up, the war in Ukraine ends, even mm-hmm. then. You don't think the demand side impulse will go, and therefore, inflation net net will remain substantially above target. Yeah, ab- above target. That's right. I think. I think um, it, there's two. You know, economists here kind of on both both sides of this. Like, there's um, one group who say it's supply side stuff, temporary, and it'll the supply, China's COVID and um, and the other group says, "Yeah, but it's it's a combination." And uh, um, the like, someone like Larry Summers, for example, would say that it's you know it's um, you've got to unless you tighten money or have a have a crank have a deep recession, you're not going to get the inflation rate down. And I, I'm a little bit more towards the um, Summers camp on this that you need to you need to really. You need to have a recession, um, like not a. Again, it's very divided. People, people say you don't need a recession. We really need a recession to bring the inflation rate down to target. And I don't think this, um, the demand side, both both the uh, fiscal side and the monetary side, because we're talking about even another. Some more money, from more spending coming on for the healthcare and the prescription, which I think are necessary uh, things for the U.S. But we're not talking about uh, fiscal tax tax increases, or you know, we're still the debate is still on increasing government spending. Yeah. So um, for those reasons, um, yes, I, I I guess I agree with what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. That. Mm-hmm. I suppose, you know, so extending that summer's decal argument that you need substantial rise in unemployment or a deep recession to bring prices under control, mm-hmm. is that desirable? I mean, what would you rather have, live with inflation or lose your job? I think most people will say mm-hmm. the former. I think that's right. I think that, and that's, therein, therein lies the political conundrum. That's exactly right, that I'm a tenure professor, so I'd rather have low prices. So <laughs> summer's, but... <laughs> That's not good for your for the for the um, lovely uh, baristas and the charming waiters and you know the uh, very helpful um, production workers. It's it's not a good thing. So I, I, that that's the and the, and the, their interest should be taken into account. Um, it's it's a little bit different. Again, the '80s was a different different thing. The uh, the political sort of composition of the electorate was different from today so um, I think now it's less it's more diverse and younger the younger people have 
are much in the US, one of the interesting things compared to Japan is that the millennium population fraction of the, the voting public is now larger than the baby boom generation. Whereas Japan, you have so many old people that the old people still kind of have political power. But here the power is shifting to more people 30s, 20s, 30s. And they, you know, this inflation is actually good for them, better for them than for us. So I think um, that's the um, there's a shift and po- politicians are rationally responding to that. So there is going to be an inflationary, more of an inflationary bias today than in the 1980s. And this other people have kind of commented on this, but I think that's I, I, I agree with that. Yeah, right. But but that's about the political imperative. I would like mm-hmm. to think the Federal Reserve is above that. OK, yeah, <laughs> that's right. But um well, if the Fed's interested in 2% inflation, what, right? I mean, Fed has a dual mandate, but uh, which, makes, which makes it more complicated. But um, yeah, it, it wasn't, um, you know, they didn't even have a mandate in the 1980s. <laughs> so right. it was, and they still kept, still lowered it to, um, um, that, that I think inflation was thought to be evil number one. Today, it's today it's not, and uh, I think um, um, some inflation is beneficial for the U.S. debt as well. So, and you know, maybe we might going to talk about emerging markets, but the, um, I think the U.S. would like to have the dollar a little weaker than than it right. is currently for the U.S. economy. Uh, but um, you know, but still, foreigners who hold dollars, such as uh, the Chinese, Japanese, and the Germans. I mean, they're, the the inflation is not not helpful for their. You're going to have capital losses there too. So, uh, I think I think it's um, yeah. So so for those various reasons, I um, I think inflation is going to be a little elevated. I I do think. I mean, being an old old sort of an older economist, um, I do think that this credibility of the Fed in the 1980s was gained at great cost of, of inflation and the unemployment. And uh, I'm, I'm a little bit, um, have mixed feelings that, you know, the credibility of the Fed as an inflation fighter is, is sort of uh, quite a, a little bit less today than it, than it used to be. And it's kind of that credibility is being dissipated a little bit. Um, it's, you know, looks at financial markets, and that, that's a very good thing. So, so for those reasons, I think inflation will be um, will be um, more elevated. But but who knows? You know, I, we might actually have a have a recession for regardless of what the Fed. Um, I don't. You know, it might not be from over tightening, but recessions start from all unexpected reasons, and you have one, and then the problem is solved. So <laughs> right, and and you know, I mean, so you know, we're talking. We were recording this on uh, Friday morning. On Thursday, we had the uh, second quarter GDP data, uh, mm-hmm. which showed the U.S. economy contracting on the back of the mm-hmm. first quarter contraction. Yeah. So I suppose it would have to start with housing. So mm-hmm. what's your local observation? The red hot Southern California housing market is it getting mm-hmm. dented by the higher interest rates? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The the um, the um, more higher mortgage rates have certainly dented. Like in my neighborhood, um, you know, you have. Maybe two or three percent prices have fallen since its peak. In peak, uh, you look at so all over Southern California, the higher end forms, higher end houses are selling less, and 
Yes, indeed. I, I think um, f- for the time being, housing prices have peaked and they've started falling. So they've fallen maybe uh, like 2% over the last two months. Yeah, around here. Right. And what about that component in the CPI, owner's mm-hmm. equivalent rent? Uh, yeah, so th- that that would help. Kind of, mechanically, that would help. And also rents, if um, the economy is a little weak or landlords can't hike rents as quickly, right? So that so actual rents are not going to be rising as much. And certainly the imputed rents as housing prices fall are going to be um, um, lower. So that, that'll bring down. And the housing component is a large component of the CPI. So that's going to uh, bring it down. And you have energy and um, energy and energy coming down. Food's a concern that we haven't seen declining food prices yet. So, but. Right. Uh, you know, actually that's probably even a graver concern for emerging markets. Uh, we will talk right. about that uh, uh, momentarily. Uh, mm-hmm. So one upshot from this higher interest rate has been this, this amazing, you know, strength of the U S dollar on the, mm-hmm. uh, at the expense of the rest of the world. Uh, so I was, you mm-hmm. know, in, in London, I mean, one nineteen dollar for a pound. I don't remember that ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and similarly, you know, your dollar going toward parity. And of course, more importantly, emerging market currencies coming under pressure. Um, so to the point of discussing about recession and perhaps the Fed not being inclined to engineer a massive recession, meaning sooner or later, they will relent from taking interest rates, say, past 4% or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, would is, is the market beginning to price that out? Is the dollar peaking? Or you see further, and then if you do see further dollar strength, what does it mean for No, I, I, I sort of, um, I thought it was peak. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, um, I follow the end dollar rate, and I, I think it's peak there, 130, yeah. You know, yeah, three or so. So um, I, I think you've seen, I mean, inflation should you know, you and I are specialists in this. Like, inflation should depreciate the U.S. currency. Right? You have the interest rate stuff, but that's the cap brings in capital flows. But also, simply by uh, purchasing power parity, the old monetarist argument that should help push the inflation rate. So the the uh, and which is the desire of the Fed, Fed as well to some extent, to a large extent. So um, I, I think the yeah, I, I mean I. I think it's a the dollar has reached a peak or close to its peak, and that's why we're sort of upset we didn't travel this summer because it would be it would have been the time to go to Europe or Japan or wherever. Yeah, right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess you know there are two ends of this argument. So one end, you know, the dollar across a basket of currencies may have peaked, but mm-hmm. the sort of narrative that we're seeing out of Europe and elsewhere, mm-hmm. you know, they're also falling into you know major recessionary mm-hmm. dynamic. So yeah, yeah. You'll still find uh, Europe rather reasonably priced. Uh, I see. Okay. The dollar yeah, not so substantially like weaker. A, mm-hmm. Yeah, like a week. You're right. The U.S. economy. Why the dollar is stronger is partly the high interest rates, but also the um, the real economy stronger than Japan and Europe, and that's that certainly helps in strengthening the strengthening the currency. So yeah. So Robert, you and I, both as students as well as professionals through our careers, have seen every single rate hike cycle out of the U.S. being accompanied mm-hmm. by some sort of an EM crisis, some deeper mm-hmm. than others. Yeah. Um, are we going to see waves of default and and major crises now? Well, capital's um, capital's flowing out, right? Uh, so um, 
if that if that continues to accelerate, then um, you're going to have investment um, investment declining, and these countries have to start at raising interest rates to defend their currencies. And uh, so it's not a it, um, it's not a um, it's not a it's not a particular positive outlook. But one should also, I think, look at emerging markets. Um, Sort of country by country. I think we first sort of you, you and I first um, connected because we were working on a similar topic. Um, That's right. On, uh, interest rate, interest rate defense of currencies. Absolutely. And and these are these are countries and um, these are co- and so we looked at. I think you and I you you work with the. I guess he he became the governor of the Bank of. Brazil. Right? Yes, Elon, who is yeah. now the head of the Western Hemisphere Department of the IMF. Okay, there you go. So Elon, yes. so you, you and that's a that was a great paper, and so I, I think um, I think ultimately it depends on the on the the fundamentals kind of strengths of these emerging markets. Like if their if their fundamentals are really strong, this is they can they're going to be able to withstand uh, withstand this capital outflows, higher U.S. interest rates, and. Um, um, but I think in, in in those cases of these emerging and also the during the Latin American crisis of the 19, 1980s, each country it, it was not just simply driven by um, the high interest rates during the Volcker era. I mean, the, these countries really had domestic; they borrowed too much during the oil surplus of the nineteen seventies, and their investments were not good, right? They were investing in kind of crappy projects. And that's when the interest rates rose, that, that's why they were hurting. Similarly, the situation in the Asian countries, right? During the 1990s. So I, I feel that it's not, some, it's not saying, oh, the U.S. interest rates have risen. Capital is going to be more, is less, it's gonna, not going to be as floating as much to our countries. They're going to go back. Well, if you have... Um, um, if you have a fundamental, like Singapore is not going to have any problem. If you have a fundamentally strong economy, it's going to it's going to be um, you're going to be able to withstand it fine. And most of these cases, you know, we we study individual countries or regions, and they have flaws. They're severely flawed in in some way, and this capital outflow just exacerbates it. Uh, I think, um, and I. I mean, as far as I, I follow Asia much more ca- much more carefully than anywhere else, and I feel that um, I mean, certainly, you know, Korea is no longer emerging market, but that's fine. They're fine. Japan basically is fine, and Ch- China's fine. Singapore's fine. Um, you know, yeah, I feel generally it seems very strong in, in that in that region. Uh, so um, I, I, I'm not I'm not that I'm not that concerned. Um, uh, concerned about it and yeah See, but, uh, uh, but again i don't know i don't know the individual countries in latin america for example as well so robert I mean, you were talking in the context of talking with the u.s earlier that food prices have not come down so i suppose my mm-hmm. worry is the energy food mix um mm-hmm. i mean there are manifestations of various supply side developments around the world yeah. but mm-hmm. but the extent of they can create distress for particularly in commodity importing economies whether i think that's right like the vietnam yeah. for example yeah. so and that's yeah. that's where the worries are mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. that even this year's high energy prices will feed into higher food prices next year that's through right. fertilizer mm-hmm. and other channels yeah yeah fertilizer um, and such um so so in some ways you know 
just like the 70s, it really ends and begins and ends with oil. If we can get mm-hmm, somehow mm-hmm, oil under mm-hmm. control, I think a lot of the discussions we're having, uh, having will probably start to fade. Uh, so, so let's let's hope for that. If oil prices come under control, right. yeah, Correct. yeah. Um, but but see, even on that issue, Robert, I have a lot of you know conflicting thoughts in my head um, because on one hand the um, uh, the desire now to pump more oil, more coal, because we have high energy prices. I worry that that will undermine the climate change agenda. And I also feel that, you know, basic economics sort of dictates that you do want the relative prices of fossil fuel products to be high. Otherwise, why would anybody start investing or using mm-hmm. alternative fuel? Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on this? Well, it's a, the usual, yeah, the argument that the the market will, will solve the energy shortage problem and promote... Um, it's it's clearly that clearly that case, um, and um, but it, it's it's the pace. If you secularly expect, as as we do, you have eventually oil running up out and oil prices rising over fifty years, and also you have a climate um, climate problem where the in that case the government needs to subsidize because it's kind of a public good, right? That's right. But in, in those cases, um, you can have um, this increase, um, um, I think, oil prices will secularly increase, and that will promote conservation and conservation and uh, moving towards um, more energy efficient types of transportation and systems. I think I think that will um, that will continue, but I think it's just the pace of the rapid rise over the last year of of commodity prices that's um, um, that's difficult to deal with, and and um, that's not a it's not a long term. Um, structural change kind of argument, you know. Be, uh, that's that's more of a more of a shock that um, is um, these disturbances are maybe hard to manage in the in the in the short run because um, um, they're not ins- they're not insured against the, these shocks. Uh, in a lot of these countries that for the reasons you mentioned, inflation, food prices going up sharply, they don't have the stuff stored, and you know they're not hedged with uh, against these um, these food and oil prices and that that's that and that's going to create a problem so yeah in the short run um i think you these these shocks um if you can smooth them that that's fine but if you can't um um i i won't say that um um that these shocks are good things because they're going to promote energy sufficiency because that's that's more of a longer term thing. Yeah. Indeed. Um, so, Robert, earlier uh, we were talking about, you know, the the the, the Pradhan Goodhart thesis that one pushback against their idea that the world is deglobalizing is that, well, there are many other parts of the world that will remain very much globalized and we have favorable demographic to bring us, you know, cheap manufacturing for mm-hmm. Yeah, that's been the counter argument. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but we certainly cannot avoid the firm fact that the West is trying to divest us away from relying too much on China. So all mm-hmm. these China plus one strategies and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, finding ways to push back against IP and all that sort of stuff. So, mm-hmm. so this this narrative of pushback, uh, would that undermine global growth prospects? I mean, we have been such a big beta to China's growth over the last two decades. Mm-hmm. Where are we going to get alternative sources of growth if we're going to start pushing China toward a corner? Um, no, I don't. Um... Chinese growth, you know, it, it's it's enormous, but it's 
it's not going to see the see that those high single digit growth rates that sure. did right it's going to drop five five four percent which was like korean levels these are kind of examples that you see all first japan then the NICs and then the then china so its growth rate's gonna um gonna go down uh go down to some extent and you know i've always been I mean, maybe people have different views on it but i'm i'm hopeful for um i tend to focus a lot on demographics but i'm hopeful for like the philippines and yeah, the South a- South Asian countries um, and even Africa, and to take take up some of this, to take up some of this. Like, I mean, I'm a, I'm an internationalist, and um, I think um, the um, the West has. Compare Eastern. Uh, it's it's it was a very um, China faced a very benign environment until fairly global environment until now, and um, so you know I, I hope I hope that um, I hope that benign environment will continue. But you know there's this this geo geopolitical issue that, that you know that's that's going on right now. Um, my my feeling is that. As, as I was saying, unlike the Soviet Union, China was a beneficiary of the of the global system and of a benign global system. And I think their their leaders are going to realize that, you know, what what, what are we going to gain from kind of siding with being sort of pariahs of the international system because they gained and and just doing this calculus of how. Europe and the rest, the open part of Asia and the United States, um, that that of where their future is going to lie will make them. And I and I don't will they may not admit it, but a rational actor would kind of jointly determine sort of global where the global economy would, along with the U.S. and I think European countries like China, China would. And I so I'm not. Um, I don't think it's going to head in the direction of let's um, you know let's be a pariah of the goal because they have they benefited so much and it's it's just been so good for China. Whereas for the Soviet Union, I think it's arguable where the internationalization has helped them that much, except for the oil prices and stuff. But, right. but for China, it's um, uh, it's it's very clear. So I'm not that negative about um, China kind of disappearing from. Right, the global the global picture, yeah. yeah. So I guess Robert. I, I mean, this is a, this is again a it's it's like the the most the very important political economy question. I don't think anyone has an answer. Right. Um, well, I guess you know I I worry the other side of the thing, which is that it's not just a question of whether China wants to be part or not. I think the answer to that is pretty clear. They do, uh, mm-hmm. but the pushback that they're getting, particularly from the U.S. and perhaps increasingly mm-hmm. is the coalition of democracies and how that ends up worries me quite a bit. And it's, mm-hmm. I'm not alone it's sitting here in Singapore. There are others also who worry that yeah. countries also get sort of, you know, pulled and pushed between these two great powers and mm-hmm. how that sort of gets in the way of investment and so on. Yeah, but, I, there's no doubt about that, yeah. But I'm glad that you still are sort of, you know, pinning your hopes on 
rational actors. That's what mm-hmm. we need. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Robert Deacon, thank you so much for your time and insight. Good. This was great. So it was really, really great talking to you. And don't be a stranger. I'll see you in LA. Yeah. I, I will try to make this happen. Uh, thanks okay. to our <laughs> listeners as well. Uh, Kobe Time was produced by Ken Delridge from Spy Studios. Daisy Sharma and Violet Lee provided additional assistance. Kobe Time is for information only and does not represent any trade recommendations. All 81 episodes of the podcast are available on YouTube and on all major platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day.